The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program. WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, WLHS, the Lakota Local School District, or staff and management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as specific legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on WMKV, WLHS, and the Maple Knoll Radio Network. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Vina Jones-Cox, and this is Real Life Real Estate Investing, your nation's public radio source for the news, information, tips, advice, and strategies you need to start or build a successful real estate career. And it's the beginning of the year. It's the time that we are all thinking about getting our houses in order and our ducks in a row. And Also the time of year when we are starting to think about preparing our 2013 taxes. So on today's program, we are going to answer your tax questions and also talk about some changes that you are going to see in your tax forms and deductions and reporting requirements for 2014. My guest today is John Heyer, a tax attorney and accountant from the Columbus, Ohio area and frequent guest here on Real Life Real Estate Investing. He's joining us from his home in the Columbus area. And John, when I when I called you back in December and asked if you would do an end of the year tax planning show, you said in fairly strong terms, no way. Because December's too late. Yeah, there's there's very little left to be done in December. There are a few things to tweak and such. But if people are calling me then, you know, there are a few things we can do, but not much. This is the time to really start. You've got the whole year ahead of you. You can actually plan it out, think ahead, be organized, very unentrepreneurial things to do, which is, of course, why we're going to push it. <laughs> Yes, and uh, you know every every year as folks are making their New Year's resolutions about how their businesses are going to be better and run more smoothly and profitably the following year, uh, they tend to make some tax-related resolutions like, yeah, this year I'm actually going to track the mileage that I drive for business. You just hit one of the, the ones I wanted to mention, the beginning of every month. I'm going to give people a shortcut on how to do that because I understand less work is better. And the beginning of every month, write down how many miles are on the odometer. If you have to cheat a touch, write down today's as opposed to January the 1st because you were drinking then. And track that. Then what you do is you pick one week every month. And I'm going to suggest a second week. I'll explain why in a second. Pick one week every month. And I want you to track your mileage religiously such that you can give me a very exact percentage of how much was business and how much was personal. I mean, out to four digits, so 32.55% or some such. Don't give me round numbers. Don't give me 35%. Don't give me 95%. Don't give me 50%. That screams guesswork in an audit. I want you to then apply that percentage that you took a week coming up with to the total mileage for the month. 
That will tell you how many miles during the month were business miles. That's important information. The IRS audits for it. And it's a big deduction. It adds up. Why do I like the second month? Or sorry, the second week of the month? Because if you look, you do the most business driving that week. You have holidays, the third and fourth weeks, like Christmas and Thanksgiving, that screw it up. And you've got Labor Day and July 4th, the first week. So if you want to have a decent average, go for the second week. Is this boring? Yes. Will this make you money? Yes. Mm-hmm. It'll make you a ton of money. What is the IRS mileage deduction up to these days? You know, I haven't looked, honestly, at 2014. Last year it was 55 and a half cents. I suspect we're getting either at or close to 60 cents a mile. Um, I got one client who takes pride in buying a jalopy and then writing off more in mileage than he paid for the car in the first three years. (laughs) A landlord, I'm guessing. Uh, Yeah, what was the clue? (laughs) All right, so things, things as simple as just keeping the mileage log on your dashboard and uh, committing to holding on to those receipts and maybe entering them into QuickBooks once a month as opposed to handing John a grocery bag full of receipts at the end of the year and saying, I'm not really sure what these are attributable to, but figure out how to deduct them, are all things that can really and truly save you big money each and every year. Let's talk a little bit about some of the uh, uh, changes that uh, that folks are going to see as they start to file their taxes. I know IRA holders are going to see a big one this year. Oh, yeah. There's the, I always forget the number of the form. For, for an accountant, I have a terrible memory. That's why I always look things up. But I believe it's the 5498. It's the form that at the end of the year you use to report the fair market value of your IRA to the IRS. And what they have changed on it, is they are now looking for information on self-directed IRAs. So if you have what they call alternative investments, houses, LLCs, notes, basically anything that's fun to put in your IRA, they are now asking, do you have these things? And if so, how, how much is it worth? Now, why would they ask this? Because in audits, they're finding a lot of people who self-direct also misdirect and don't follow the tax laws, and they're getting some easy victories that they make money on. So they'd like to track this and make more money. So what's the corollary? You need to know the IRA rules. You need to follow those rules, and you need to be meticulous. Because unfortunately, if you screw up on a prohibited transaction, I don't care if it's a dollar. If you screw it up, the IRA goes away completely. With all the expected penalties and taxes that you didn't pay in the past and so on attached to that, I assume. Yeah, basically what we tell people is if you have a prohibited transaction in your IRA, you should count on handing about 50% of the IRA over to the government. So that's that's usually a bad day. (laughs) So even if you have been meticulous in the past, this might be a good year to update your education in the area of IRA investing because... Uh, the thinking in that regard is moving very, very quickly. Uh, some things that we were told were okay a few years ago, we're now being told, eh, maybe that's not. I have the good fortune to deal with IRA audits. I've got several of them, and I've already been the tax court on one, which we did very, very well on. So I'm seeing how fast it's moving, and even the IRS isn't sure where they're going with it. They're still like a giant two-year-old. So very huge and dangerous and crushes all sorts of things when it gets in front of them, but also very clumsy and toddling and banging in the random things. They, they really haven't hit their learning curve yet. They're starting to. Mm-hmm. 
You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. We're talking today about tax planning for 2015. That's right. It's January 2014, and we're talking about how to cut your taxes for 2014 so that when 2015 rolls around, you can look back and say, wow, that was all really worth it, and I'm glad I got that into order. Talking today to John Heyer, who is a tax attorney and uh, works with clients all over the country. So if you are all over the country and have questions for John, you can give us a call at 877 772 658 or you can send us an email at askvina ask at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox, and we are talking today about tax planning because, guys, we're really going to get on it this year. We're really going to, like, we're not going to wait until December and try and go back and reconstruct what happened all year long. We're going to take advantage of all of the deductions that are legally available to us. We are going to set up our lives in such a way as to pay the minimum possible taxes legally, right? Here to help us with that process is John Heyer. He's uh, very familiar to longtime listeners of Real Life Real Estate Investing. He is probably the best known tax attorney in the country in terms of uh, folks who have made real estate an area of expertise and real estate investors a uh, kind of preferred client, which uh, I don't know why people would want to put up with that torture, but John does. So uh, we're talking about what you can do and also taking your questions at 877-772-9658 or at askvina at gmail.com. So John, what other new things, surprises can we expect as we start to prepare our taxes this year? You know, there's been a shift on some entity thinking. Traditionally, when you want to avoid Social Security or self-employment tax, which are pretty much the same thing, you would use an S-corporation. It's really the only reason you use an S-corporation. You can still use them, but things are changing some. Um, the audit rates on them are very high. The IRS has won some cases, particularly against people who represented themselves, what, what lawyers call pro se, um, and, and won some really big victories with S-corporations when they're trying to reduce self-employment tax. Now, first of all, that really only applies to those of you who buy and sell. Right? If you have a regular business where you buy and sell something frequently or you sell services, that's where self-employment tax comes up. You really don't see it much in the context of rentals. Um, and, and what we're seeing because of the high audit rates on S-corporations and the IRS winning court cases we're starting to see a shift towards using multi-member LLCs to reduce the self-employment tax. And the reason is twofold. A, not nearly as heavily audited, and B, the law is less developed when it comes to self-employment tax on multi-member LLCs, and so there's more room to argue. Uh, And that's a fairly recent revelation. It's not something that's cast in stone. It's just a trend I'm seeing with some of the, the lawyers who specialize in entities, and I'm starting to hear more and more of them talk about that structure. So it's gaining some acceptance. So a subtle shift, but very important. Self-employment tax is a huge chunk of most businesses that, that don't revolve around, say, rents, interest, or dividends. Mm-hmm. Okay. What else? Any, any, other, any other things that are really going to take uh, folks by surprise this year? I'd say they're still, they're still upping enforcement on 1099s. 
1099s need to be sent out to the recipients by the end of January, I really wouldn't blow that off. That's something entrepreneurs do a lot of. Mm-hmm. And in past years, they've gotten away with it, and people have gotten complacent, and the IRS wants money, and they're starting to enforce it. We saw a guy last year, something we, don't, we, we hadn't seen for a long time. I've been practicing close to 20 years, and I hadn't seen this but once in 20 years. I've heard of it multiple times. Here it is. If you 1099 someone and you have the wrong social security number or no social security number or you don't 1099 them at all and the IRS cannot collect the tax, you pay the tax at the highest possible rate. Uh, We just saw a client come in. Thankfully, he wasn't one of ours. He came in from someone else, another evil accountant who properly failed to inform him. Um, He had a number of employees who were, let us say, What's the euphemism? Undocumented citizens. And he did 1099 them, and he used Social Security numbers they gave him. He did not collect W-9s. Those cover you. If you have a W-9 and a Social Security number is wrong, the IRS will not make you pay somebody's taxes from the day they give you a letter backwards. So usually if, if the Social Security number is no good, they send you a letter and they say, from now on, we want you to withhold on payments to this contractor because they're skipping out on us. And you withhold. It's the money that's it's coming out of their money. If you didn't have a W-9, they say, all right, for everything on the 1099, we're taking 42% out of you. 42% of a 1099 comes out of you. If the IRS, if you didn't 1099 or gave a wrong or missing Social Security number, they can come after you. And we're seeing it happen more frequently. It's not. It's always been in the law. We haven't really seen it happen before. Mm-hmm. So suddenly your cheap labor that you were thrilled that you got uh, isn't so cheap when you add 42% to every dime that you paid them. What sort of what sort of folks should we be worried about this with? Uh, uh, certainly people who are doing actual physical work for us. Uh, what about uh, companies that I hired a web design company to do some work for me? Do I need to 1099 them? Yes, if it's over $600 in services per year total, you have to 1099 them. So, for example, they should be 1099ing me, the guy who does returns or lawyer work. In fact, if you look, if you want to have a little fun, look on the 1099 instructions, and you can tell the IRS specifically targets lawyers for 1099s, because evidently they're not really good about paying their taxes. <laughs> but, wow, so even our, even our professionals uh, now need to be 1099 yeah, anybody who provides a service, 600 or more per year, and they're not a corporation. Now, if you're not sure, you 1099 them. So, for example, if it says John Hire Incorporated, well, okay, that's a corporation. We don't have to 1099. If it says John Hire LLC or Limited, you really need to 1099. Mm-hmm. What about people who bought properties from wholesalers and paid wholesale fees? Do they need to be 1099ing the wholesalers? You know, that's debatable. Um, and I'd say when it's debatable, by the way, 1099, what does it mean? You and I both know what it means. If you ask somebody for a W-9 that lays out, look, this is my Social Security or this is my tax ID number, if the person tells you, I don't want to do that, and you have to pay me in cash, little green pieces of paper, what does that mean? <laughs> it means they're not going to pay the government. Mm-hmm. And you're rolling the dice at that point. Um, so we see it a lot with contractors. The most common issues I see by far are with contractors who don't report anything, and then later up they get audited and they, they can't pay it, and then there are issues. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So when in doubt, 
go get one of those forms from Staples or wherever you want to buy yeah. them and go yeah, ahead it's and a cheap little set. They're easy to fill out. We'll do them, but it's so easy. You don't really need someone to do it and get them sent in. Just get the W9s. And it, people will ask, what do we do if we don't have the W9? Well, my, my response as a lawyer is you got to follow the law and still file, do the best you can to get it. And you have a judgment call to make. I've got some clients who don't follow my advice because they think it creates more risk. That's their choice. It's their money. Mm-hmm. Very true. Uh, folks, you're listening to Mr. John Heyer talk about uh, general tax issues that you're going to need to deal with uh, this year and next. Uh, he's also willing to address specific tax questions that you might have if you'd like to give us a call at 877-772-9658. Or you can send us an email at askvina at gmail.com. That's A-S-K-V, like in Victor, E-N-A at gmail.com. Now, John, you, you work with a lot of entrepreneurial type people from all over the country. What are the two or three biggest things that drive you crazy where you say, you know, you could have, you could have, you could have made this so much cheaper for yourself. You could have made it, you could have saved on taxes. You could have saved on tax preparation fees. What do you see them doing over and over and over again? Two big things come immediately to mind. First of all, the piecemealers, the people who send me a little tiny bit of information, a little tiny bit at a time, and I've got 27 emails to look at, and if I miss any one of them, it's my fault. And so I have to spend a ton of time making sure I don't miss a detail, and then they wonder why their bill's so high and yell and scream. Um, and, and likewise, just overall, not very good records. Um, I prefer QuickBooks or Quicken, and, and what you really have to do is just get it to match your bank account. Right. If we don't agree with where you put everything, how you classified it, that's easy to fix. But if it matches the bank account, if it ties to your bank records, you've just saved everybody a whole ton of issues. Probably the other thing is, um, the third one is the super cheap investors, which we get rid of those when we identify them. But you know the, you know the landlord types who don't pay anybody and they negotiate everything? Complete waste of time to deal with these people. They drive me absolutely nuts. I'm not a motivated seller. I'm not in foreclosure. I'm not getting a divorce. Uh, I didn't lose my job, and so you you can't nickel and dime me, and I'm not going to do your return for 25 cents. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, um, and, and, uh, and the 20 to 30 minutes you spend arguing with them is utterly frustrating. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, the unwillingness to pay people who are experts in important topics like tax preparation, but also like drafting contracts and like doing closings and <laughs> uh, like representing you in eviction court, things like that, uh, is, a, is a, a thing that, that happens in our business. And my experience over time has been that, yeah, I'm, I might save a few thousand dollars by doing my own taxes, but it's also going to take me 50 hours to do it where I could have gone out and done another deal or two in that 50 hours. Yeah, I can go do my own title search and I can, uh, you know, find most of the stuff that could be a problem and I can do my own closing and save $400. And then when things go wrong later, uh, it, it costs me $20,000 to save that $400. So uh, point well taken that... People get paid what they get paid for a reason, and uh, you know maybe it's time to stop thinking about what other folks are getting and figure out what you can do with that time that you're spending making their lives miserable. 
You're listening, oh, to, here, here. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. We're going to take a quick break, after which we will come back to your questions at 877-772-9658 or at askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox, talking today to John Heyer. Um, have a quick gift for Real Life Real Estate listeners from the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati. Uh, Rhea is actually holding a webinar tomorrow night about how to uh, pl- uh, do a strategic plan for your business in 2014. Uh, it was actually the topic of the last RIA meeting, but after, you know, five inches of snow and 20 degree weather, uh, that meeting was canceled. So the webinar is uh, going to cover the same ground as that meeting, and it's free and it's neat, and it's at eight o'clock tomorrow night. And you can get the link to register by going to our Facebook page. So if you go to uh, facebook.com slash real life real estate, you will find the. Uh, link there and you can just click it and register and join Jim Shapiro tomorrow night for about an hour long talk uh, and slide presentation about how to do a real plan not just like oh I'm going to buy more houses this year uh, for 2014 so yay Cincinnati Rhea and yay real life real estate listeners Um, John got a question here this is from Bill in Lexington Kentucky he says, "Is what is the latest on avoiding dealer status? Now, before you answer the question, it might be a good idea to explain what dealer status is. Yeah, it's, it's a shorthand that you hear a lot with real estate people. Um, if, you, if you buy and sell properties repeatedly, at some point you become a quote-unquote dealer. Um, now, we can argue how many properties you have to sell and for how long, before that happens, and it eventually will happen to flippers. Um, it happens to people who assign very quickly because it's a different kind of income. What does that mean? You don't get to pay capital gains rates. You have to pay ordinary income rates, which are higher, and you have the Social Security tax we had talked about. Um, so what's the latest on it? You know, there hasn't been any real case law developed. And then to be frank, you know, it's funny. The speakers, the gurus, make a big, big deal about dealer status. And you just don't see it with the IRS that often. Usually, it's really clear if somebody's a dealer or not. Hey, I wholesaled um, 20 properties last year. And guess what? You're a dealer. I wholesaled two properties last year. Probably not a dealer. I wholesaled eight properties last year. Borderline. Um, I might throw the dog a bone and treat three as dealer, five as not. I wholesaled four properties a year for the last 10 years. Yeah, you're probably a dealer, but it's a close call. How aggressive do you want to be? So it's it's an issue we see investors make a big deal out of, but usually it's pretty clear. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is a big deal. I mean, the difference between what you pay in tax if you're a dealer and what you pay if you're not is is very significant, particularly if you do it repeatedly. So most of the time that is dealt with not by lying about whether or not you're a dealer or trying to pretend that you're not, but rather by good entity structuring. You got it. Good entity structuring and maybe a little bit aggressive in the beginning. In the beginning, what we tend to do when someone's new and it's not clear that they're a dealer, because usually it's not very gray, but in the beginning when they're getting started, it usually is gray. And then we'll ask them, how aggressive do you want to be? And if the answer is you want to be somewhat aggressive, 
uh, first we have the discussion of, all right, you're saving taxes and you're not going to split those with me, and that's okay. And if it doesn't pan out because we are being aggressive, I'm not going to share the penalties with you. <laughs> uh, fair is fair. So we put the, uh, the buy-sell properties on Schedule D as in dog, where they're subject to typically short-term capital gains rates. What's the advantage? No self-employment tax, no Social Security tax, which is an extra 15%. But as you said, once you have that issue, we do a couple things. Choice of entity, but also there are some legitimate ways to shift dealer-type income into non-dealer status. A classic example is a doctor has an office. Uh, he provides services, which are treated exactly like dealer income on flips. It's the same thing. What do you do? You have a separate LLC that owns a rental property. You rent that office. What does that do to your dealer income? It lowers it. What does it do to your rental income? It hires it. So your, tax, your income tax doesn't change at all. But what happens to your so-called dealer tax? Well, it went down. The business that pays the rents gets a deduction for the rents, and you don't have Social Security tax on the rental. You can do the same thing with interest. So there are ways to shift it, and as you said, there are ways with entities to plan around it. Now, the entities get a little more complicated. I need to know something about you. How much do you spend? How much do you make? How much do you think you're going to spend, or how much do you make? How good are you at predicting the future? Because if your prediction's not very good, our advice might end up in hindsight having been not so good. And that helps us decide... Well, should we do LLCs, S-corporations, C-corporations, a mix? So if, any, if anybody tells you, one of the things I do see fairly frequently, um, somebody will ask a guru, what entity do I need? And the guru gives them an answer without asking any questions. Well, the guy must be Miss Cleo. I mean, just reading their mind and telling their future and figuring everything out without any questions, which is pretty amazing. <laughs> You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing, talking today to John Heyer about uh, your tax questions and also just what you can do to save on taxes in 2014 and 2015, because in, in some ways it's too late to save on taxes in 2013. And there might be one exception to that, John, and that is I believe there is still time for folks to make a contribution to certain kinds of retirement plans. Bingo. Um, most retirement plans you can still contribute to up until April 15th. There are a couple that if you extend, you can contribute up to the extended due date, and that would exclude 401ks. 401ks had to be by the end of the year. So you have time to contribute to your health savings account, which is a wonderful, it's a glorious thing. HSAs are like Roth IRAs on steroids. You don't pay tax on the money you take out for health, but you get a deduction for the money you put in. Those are wonderful, mm-hmm. wonderful. And you can still put money in them till April 15th. Which doesn't mean you should wait till April 15th. This would be a good thing to write down as a to-do for tomorrow <laughs> to get started because that's come April 15th. You're going to be busy doing other things. Um, we have a question here from Steve in Canton, Ohio. Steve says, John, I am hoping that you can help me resolve a problem that my own accountant doesn't seem to know what to do with. In 2009, I sold a property on land contract, collecting the first-time homebuyer tax credit. I sold it for $60,000. The tenant buyer moved out. It's not really a tenant buyer there, Steve. It's a, an actual buyer. Uh, moved out in April of 2013, and now I don't know how to put the property back on my books. So, in other words, I think his question, John, is he had a house that was sold and was being treated one way for taxes, and now it's a rental... 
This is good that we're talking because most accountants screw this up. Um, there are two major issues to watch for. If you issue a 1099-C, which is forgiveness of debt, in other words, this person skipped out, there was debt that they owed in the form of the land contract, you're probably not going to collect on it. If that's the decision you've made, you issue a 1099-C. Now, if you're going to go after it, you don't issue that. If you issue the 1099-C, the fair market value, first of all, we don't want to lie. It should be accurate. But when you do fair market values, valuation is usually a range of possible values. And in that possible range of honest values, you would want to go towards the low end. And the reason is this. If you say there was a high fair market value greater than your basis in your land contract, the IRS will say you traded this piece of paper and you got back this property that's worth more, and so there's a gain. And that's bad. You don't want that. So that's one. Two, the, the basis in the property when it's gotten back is the basis in the property plus the gain that you paid on the land contract. So you got to go back and see how much gain you reported on the land contract over those couple of years. You add it to the old basis of the property. When you take the property back, that's your new basis. Unless the fair market value was higher than the land contract basis and you paid gain, then the fair market value is going to be the new basis because you paid taxes on the fair market value. So sounds a little more complicated than it is. Bottom line is if the fair market value is less than what you had in the land contract, it's going to be the old basis plus the gain you paid over the years on the land contract. And you can look that up. It's on Form 6252. Just add it up. If the fair market value was greater than the amount you had invested in the land contract, that fair market value becomes your new basis because you paid taxes on it. So I think what I just heard you say is that you can have a gain on a property that you actually, that you actually never stopped being in possession of and no real gain occurred. There's no new money in your pocket. It's totally phantom gain. It's absolutely a trap set up by Congress to generate revenue. Might be time for some tax reform. Oh, good luck. Don't even get me started. You told me there are words I'm not allowed to say on the air. (laughs) You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. Talking today to John Heyer and answering your tax questions. 877-772-9658. Or you can send us an email at askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I uh, am interviewing today, talking to today, Mr. John Heyer, who is a very well-known nationwide uh, expert in taxes and, more importantly, tax savings for real estate investors and landlords. Uh, We're taking your questions at 877-772-9658 if you're brave enough to call them on in. Or if you'd like to send us an email, you can do that too. It's askvina at gmail.com. Question from John in Anderson, South Carolina. Does the IRS have a time limit for a check to be cashed by the payee that was written and dated for an expense in 2013 so that it would qualify as an expense to the taxpayer in 2013? If so, how long would the IRS consider a reasonable time without raising a red flag? That's a good question. There's actually a good bit of case law on that, right? You wrote your check on December 31st. Typically, you get credit if it's cashed within a reasonable time. What's reasonable? Uh, Two weeks would be nice. You probably can get away with a month. If they wait longer than a month, all right, now it's going to start to get dicey Um, because they're going to look into the circumstances. What's going on? Why wasn't it cashed? Now, if the answer was 
I'm just one of these people that stuffs checks in places and I don't cash them and it was not a conspiracy, fine. If they find out that the person's related to you and maybe there was a wink-wink of, hey, don't cash the check, I just need the write-off, but don't cash it until March, that could be an issue. Um, but a, a surprising amount of case law on that issue. Okay, so ideally two weeks, month maybe, beyond that there could be problems. A uh, question here from Hal in Fremont, Ohio. Hal said, I was very glad to hear John address the topic of land contracts. I'm hoping he can help me with this problem. In 2012, I sold four houses on land contract. In 2013, my CPA said that I had to pay taxes on $100,000 in gain that I haven't actually gotten. Apparently, he wants me to pay taxes on the incre- on the actual sale price of the land contract, even though I've received a tiny fraction of that. Is there any way to get around that this year? It depends. I need to know more facts. Um, what was the background? Were these properties rented out? Were they investment properties? Or was it a flip sale on land contract? Now, if it was a flip sale on land contract, you do have an issue. I mean, the IRS is now, let's talk. This is one of the reasons people hire me. The IRS's position when you're a dealer and you sell on land contract, it's as if you got cash. But just because they say that doesn't mean it's right. There is, uh, we, we don't have time to go into the complexity of it. There's a theory that I've taken the audit twice now where we report the land contract at a discount. For example, you sold, let's say you bought for 60, you sold on paper for 100. The IRS says it's like you got 100 cash. Our response is no, because that piece of paper that says 100 on the front, if you ever tried to sell that, and there are websites where you can do that, if you ever tried to sell that piece of paper, it would really only sell for 70. So we're going to report it at 70. Now that's pretty aggressive, and I, I don't have time to get into law on it. We did this with mobile homes a lot. I have a couple mobile home parks, and when we sell the mobile homes, that's the approach we take. Been the audit on it twice. One time the auditor bought it. The second time, and this is great, you're going to love this, auditor was brand new. Auditor says, this is wrong, you can't do this. Well, you don't just accept that. What you do is you ask questions. And I asked the auditor, well, what do you think I should have done? And the auditor said, oh, you should have reported this on the installment sales method so you only paid a little bit of tax every year. Now, what I didn't tell the auditor was, because my client was a dealer, they didn't qualify for the installment sales method. He didn't know that. And I wasn't going to educate him. So I just asked him, well, gee, can we amend the returns here in the audit to do it the way you said? And he said, sure. So we got a huge refund. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, very good. So no way to maybe unwind this and from prior years, but going into the future, um, find an accountant who actually well, understands a, what a land he, contract is. <laughs> he, ha- he hasn't reported it yet. So we, can, we still have to look and see, is he a dealer? Now that becomes very relevant. If he isn't, or at least we have a good argument that he's not, we report it on installment sales method, and he only pays tax on the money he actually received. If he is a dealer, let's say he has this hopeless argument. Let's say he flipped 20 properties for three years in a row. He's clearly a dealer. We have no argument. We can still argue that the valuation is at a discount. So at least instead of paying on, in my example, paying on $100,000 face value, we argue that the proper quote-unquote sales price is 70. So is he still going to pay on income that he didn't get? Yeah, but it's going to be a whole lot less. Okay. 
Very good. Uh, you have a couple of minutes left, listeners, if you have a question for John Heyer to get it in via email at askvina at gmail.com. And I just got one in that I really hesitate to ask you, John, because I'm afraid it's going to push some buttons. So take a deep breath. <laughs> okay, is this an Obama question? Take a Xanax and answer the question from JC in Las Vegas, which is, what are the effects of Obamacare on taxes on forms of income like interest, dividends, rents, etc.? And that's, you know, that's a thing that's been floating around the internet in uh, in real estate investing forums for a couple of years. That oh, now do you know that your capital gains are going to be taxed for Obamacare? What's the reality of that? Yeah, it's it's straightforward and simple. It's also unprecedented, and it's going to lead to more trouble down the road. Here's the deal: if you make single. $200,000 or more per year, it's modified adjusted gross income. It's basically the number that shows up on the bottom of page one of your 1040, um, not page two, bottom of page one, with a few modifications to it. If that number, if you're single, is over 200000 or if that number is over, if you're, if you're married filing joint, is over $250,000, uh, you are now paying a roughly 4% Social Security tax on rents, interest, dividends, royalties. And this is unprecedented. That type of income throughout the history of the income tax, which is sad to say last year 100 years old, was always exempt from Social Security and self-employment tax. This is a massive, massive change. Now everyone out there says, well, if you're making that much money, you should pay more. Well, that's a very bad incentive to punish people for success. And at some point, they're going to stop making that much money. Um, so it is it is valid. It exists. If you make over 200 to 250, depending on your filing status, you're going to pay this extra tax on your rents and so forth. Now, how do you get around it? Do as much planning as you can so you don't cross that threshold, because once you cross it, you are paying. And here's what I predict. With people like Obama, once the camel has his nose in the door, the rest of the camel is sure to follow. That rate's going to go up. If you remember, Back when they started the income tax, it was promised it would only be 1% and only on very rich people. Look where we are now. So look for that tax to expand. I think that was fairly mellow of me. I didn't have a meltdown. <laughs> it was mellow. It was mellow. Congratulations. Um, all right, John, we've got like six minutes left in the show. And if you had six minutes and you were just going to give instructions to all the real estate investors out there, all the landlords out there about what to do this year to minimize their taxes and particularly looking forward to, I think what we all know is going to be higher taxes. What would you tell them? IRA, IRA, IRA. Get a Roth IRA, get a Roth 401k, get an HSA. I know a guy who got 100 free and clear rentals into a Roth IRA and the guy is now 60, meaning he's pulling rent off of 100 rentals tax-free. Make enough income that you need to live on. Make it a hundred thousand. Make it two hundred. Make it two hundred and fifty. Don't make it two hundred and fifty-one. Can't live in Ohio off of two fifty-one. We got to talk. You got issues. <laughs> make your two fifty-one or less. Everything else gets made through your Roth IRA, through your Roth four hundred one k, or through your HSA, or through your ESA for your kids. The educational savings accounts. You know, you can send kids to private school, not just college. I'm talking private school when they're three years old by using an educational savings account. So the, by far the most powerful tax planning idea is earn your income in a way that it is not taxable. 
using self-directed accounts, and there's a lot of traps. There's a lot of ways to mess it up. You need really qualified help for that. Um, we see it in audits. Um, I have the privilege of representing people in those cases, but there's so much opportunity. Look at what Romney did with his IRA. Do you remember during the election? Romney had a SEP IRA that he made contributions to, just like ours. This guy had somewhere between 20 and 100 million in his SEP IRA. That's how you play the game. <laughs> yes, and it was funny, the uh, folks who are sort of, um, you know, into the idea of redistributing to the wealth all looked at that and said, that's just wrong. We should make a law that you can't have that money in your IRA. And the rest of us all went, man, how do I do that? Yeah, unfortunately, 52% of the country was on the redistribution side. So what's the lesson? Use these tools while they still exist. I don't doubt one bit that someday they're going to outlaw Roth IRAs. But because a lot of people like Romney have something in them, the politicians won't shoot themselves in the foot. What do they normally do? They grandfather it. Stuff as much as you can legally and legitimately into those. I know people who sell notes to IRAs. I know people who sell all kinds of investments to IRAs. So do you. Mm -hmm. That people can use to grow their IRAs before the laws change. Stuff them now. What's the old saying? Make hay while the sun is shining. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes, and we will be doing uh, some more sessions here on Real Life Real Estate Investing this year on various ways to use your Roth IRA and your real estate knowledge to, as you say, legally stuff your IRA. Uh, one, one last minute question here from John in Atlanta. John says, I wonder if John Heyer would like to speculate on when and if we might lose some of the deductions that we've come to depend on, such as the interest deduction for our mortgages and so on, or given that the realtors are for it and have a powerful lobby, do you think that one's safe? That one's probably pretty safe, um, and for the exact reason that he stated. If the realtors are too hard for it, they're going to have to think real carefully about crossing them. Would I like to speculate on what happens inside the brains of politicians? No, I'm, I'm not capable of that. Um, I don't know what they're going to do. All I know is this. I know math. Right? We owe far more money than we can ever pay. It's not just that the, there, there isn't enough money in our cupboard to pay the debts we have. That much money doesn't exist. And so there's going to be a consequence, probably inflation, and probably a cutting of a lot of so-called loopholes. You've got to be ready. You've got to be ready to hunker down. It's coming. They did it during the Great Depression. They're going to do it again. All right. So tax advice plus, as John in Georgia requested, uh, also some uh, looking into the crystal ball and uh, I uh, hope you listeners uh, took advantage of this, took some notes, and are ready to straighten out your house tax-wise in 2014. You have 12 months ahead of you to get into those good habits about keeping hold of your receipts and making sure that you enter them into your uh, system, keeping track of your mileage, and of course, opening and or making contributions to and or growing your IRA. Uh, John, I'd like to thank you for joining us today and sharing all of your great advice. I'd also like to remind Real Life Real Estate listeners that tomorrow night you can join the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati for a free webinar. 
The topic is creating a strategic plan for your business in 2014. Uh, you can do that by going to our Facebook page. It's facebook.com slash real life real estate. There you will find a link that will allow you to register for that webinar. Uh, again, that's just gift to you from Cincinnati, Rhea. We will be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing. Until then, happy investing. Happy investing. 